Good morning. Today's passages are found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 25. The passage can be found on page 2 of the Pew Bible. That's Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 25. This is the New International Version, 1984. Hear now the word of the Lord, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, infallible and inerrant. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all the kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 10. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters, the name of the first is Pishon. It's when it winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, 
This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, children ages 3 to 6 are welcomed to head to their class. If you're a guest with us, there will be a teacher and mother there to greet and help. cuteness leaves the room. Good morning and welcome. I uh, have been blessed so far by my fellowship with you um, and then our worship team leading us in particular this morning. I just in my soul and encouraged. As always, we are going to look at the Word of God, and I recognize that I am, like you, just a simple man made of clay feet. We need, during this next time, the Holy Spirit, the, the third person of the Trinity, to be with us as we look at His Word. And so, as I hold up his word, I pray you'd pray with me. Oh, Lord God, if you don't show up, we worship in vain. I speak in vain. But, Father, through the promised power of the Holy Spirit, you and you alone can meet us. You can speak to us. You can illumine your word and teach us things that our souls need to know. God, would we draw close to you during this time as we look at your word. I pray that you'd help me. I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. God, would you be with us now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we know from... Uh, Genesis 1, that we, we took three weeks and we talked through Genesis 1. We're going to take one week in Genesis 2. And those three weeks, if I had to summarize what Genesis 1 said to us, I would summarize it like this. God is the God of creation. And he created for his glory. Now, in Genesis 2, some have argued that it is a second account of the creation story. We've just heard it read. Most or some modern commentators take great pains to demonstrate that Genesis 
one and two are actually opposing accounts, different authors even. And they reflect dis, uh, distinctly different traditions. I believe that that is very unnecessary. I believe it is incorrect. And fortunately for you, that's not just my opinion, but it is the opinion of theologians through the centuries. So Orthodox Christianity has said Moses wrote Genesis 2, and it's not another account of creation. What we have here is two accounts of the same event, but the second chapter has a different focus. Two accounts, same event, different focus. Whereas Genesis 1 centers upon God and creation of the universe, Genesis 2 stresses the place of mankind in God's creation, and more specifically, in the Garden of Eden. The Garden in Eden, sometimes it's confused, we say the Garden of Eden, Eden was actually a much bigger place, and there was a garden in Eden that God created, and so that would be a more accurate way to say it. It was in the midst there, and these two accounts, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, are not uh, diametrically opposed, but they emphasize and highlight different aspects of God's marvelous creative work. You know, when Peggy and I were uh, engaged, it was my first experience with diamonds. I had no knowledge of diamonds whatsoever. I went into my first diamond store. I said, I'd like to buy a diamond. He says, well, how much do you have? I said, I have nothing. He said, well, you're no good here. <laughs> I said, I'm saving right now. And he said, well, there's three things you need to know about diamonds. There's color, cut, and clarity. It's the three C's. And that was my first education. I thought, hmm, that sounds easy enough to remember. He said, the, the more clear it is, the more expensive it is, the type of cut will determine the cost. And the color, if it's yellowish, I can get you a pretty good deal. And I thought, well, I bet my wife doesn't want a yellow diamond. Um, so I began to save. But what I learned is the gymnast or the gemologist would put this little glass in his eye and he would look at the diamond. And he would say, oh, yes, this is, this is a nice one. Well, what Moses is doing in Genesis 2 is he has picked up the creation story and he's narrowing the focus for us, and he's saying, ah, now I'm going to talk about his crowning jewel in creation, which is man. Now, don't be confused. It's not all about us. It's that we reflect the glory of God more than anything else he created. It's still about the glory of God, but man has a unique way to reflect that glory that nothing else in creation can match. And so Moses is holding that up and he's given us an account. And it's interesting because in Genesis 1, where you see God mentioned, if you were to look into the Hebrew, 
Everywhere God's mentioned in Genesis 1, the word for God is the word Elohim. And the word Elohim means God Almighty. And if you're thinking about the creation story, that would be a great word for him to use for himself, is I am breathing into this universe and creating a universe and a world, and I am God Almighty. Yes. But what happens when we get to chapter 2 is the word switches from Elohim, and he begins to use the word Yahweh. You know what Yahweh is? It's a personal title. God is saying, I'm not just God Almighty, but I'm Yahweh. I came to know you. And I'm going to put you in this garden. And I'm going to walk with you in this way. And so, look with me in your Bibles at Genesis 2.5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. That word that you see Lord in verse five is indeed the word Yahweh. Again in verse seven and again in verse eight and following through chapter two, God is using the, verse Yahweh, the word Yahweh to describe himself. It's important and you see it right here in the first two chapters that God is both God Almighty, another word would be he is transcendent. He is over all things. He is supreme. In our mission statement at this church, we say that we exist to, to spread the supremacy of God because he is supreme above all else. But then in the second chapter, it comes right in and he says, but I'm also a personal God. I am above all things, beyond all things, a supreme being, but personal. And here's the thing. That's really, really good news for us. Because think about it this way. If God was good, personal and good, but not all-powerful, he might want good things for you as his creation, but he would not have the power to do anything about it if he was not all-powerful, Elohim. But think about it the other way. What if he was all-powerful, but he wasn't personal and good? Then he might could do anything, but he wouldn't be loving and kind. But in the very first two chapters of Genesis, God is saying, I am all-powerful, and I'm good. And I'm good. So, switching gears there in verse 5, it says, God had not caused it to rain. And if you read commentaries through, the, through history, some people propose that there was this, like, greenhouse environment over the earth or like a canopy over the earth. I drove over and met with a Christian scientist recently 
and I bought his book, The Genesis Account. And he is a PhD in several areas. And we were, we were discussing this issue, and he said, it's in my book, read it. And I said, well, I'm sitting here with you now, tell me. <laughs> Save me some time, I want cliff notes. And he said, and he, he gave me an explanation. And, and essentially, he blew apart my whole idea that there was this canopy or this greenhouse. And he said, just think of it like this, that there was subterranean water that was watering the earth. Now, you're thinking subterranean. I think I know that word, but sub under the terrain, the ground, subterranean. So there's water flowing, and somehow we don't really fully understand it. If somebody tells you they do, they're lying. But the, the vegetation was being watered on the earth by God in some unusual way because it had never rained to this point. Now, look with me at Genesis 2-7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Wow. Man is created from dust. God, who... Who else, other than a God, a true supreme being, could breathe life into dust and create humanity? There's a wordplay in the Hebrew language, and the play on words is the, you see it there on your screen, it says, Adam, which is man, and then the play on words is formed out of Adamah which is ground. You see, the two words are really, really similar. And Moses is doing this on purpose. And he's making a point. It demonstrates the intimate association between these two elements of man and ground or dust. However, it's much bigger than that because the relationship of man is very different from that of the ground. Man is created in the very image of God. And what I mean by that is this. Another way to say it is, I don't care who it is, socioeconomically, the color of their skin, the age, wherever they are, when you meet a human being, you're meeting someone created in the image of God. And just because they're created in the image of God, you should respect them. And you should defer to them. And you should see them as something supernatural. There's no human alive. I don't care if they're experiencing homelessness and you drive by them every day and you see them. There's a soul there. There's a soul made in the image of God. And so, a living creature in this text, it says, and the man became a living creature. God breathes into this man. It's interesting. Lots of ways God could have done it. He could have said, 
be a man. Or maybe he could have said, be the man. I like the man better. But God does something pretty personal. He breathes into the man. You see, God is showing us, I'm a personal God. He breathes into him. And a, and a translation for a living creature is soul. He gives him a soul. And so if you're sitting here today, you have a soul. And that soul separates you from all other creation. And your soul will spend eternity in a place called heaven. Or if we rebel against God and stay in our natural state, the scriptures are very clear, our soul will spend eternity in a place called hell, separated from God and everything that is good and true. So, look with me at Genesis 2, 8 and 9. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Lord planted a garden in Eden, now, as a child, or even as a younger man, I had little use for gardens. And here I'm not even thinking about, you know, like tomatoes and cucumbers. I'm just talking, yeah, you know, gardens can be, there's a broader definition there. Gardens felt to me like something old people talked about a lot. But here's the thing, I'm getting older. I have found now that frankly, I love to visit a nice garden. In fact, it would suit me fine if we had a garden here at FBC that people could come and sit and rest their soul. I would be perfectly fine with that. If anybody wants to donate thousands of dollars, let's do it. There is something restful and soulish about a garden no doubt about it no doubt about it and so in Genesis 2.8 it says the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he placed the man he had formed in other words think about this Adam was formed outside of the garden and then after he is created, God places him inside the garden. Now, the meaning of the name Eden, some people have, they're all over the place. When I read the commentaries, um, but eventually what I landed on was, I don't think anybody really knows what it means. They're just guessing. And so I'm going to tell you that the name Eden is pretty uncertain, but you can connect it to the word because in the, in the Hebrew, it can come up luxury or delight and it can be connected to the word paradise. And so perhaps that is the definition for the word Eden. But I also want you to know that 
God put man in the garden to do what? To work the garden. Bob and I recently had a visit when he was in the hospital and we were talking about a little bit about heaven. You know, what, what's heaven going to be like? And <clears throat> being a choir director, he teased, you know, are we just going to all be up there forever playing the harp and singing songs? And, uh, and he was, you know, teasing. But we both agreed, and I, I think it's pretty scriptural, that in heaven there will be work, that we'll do work, that that'll be part of it. And I think that work did not become cursed until after the fall. God worked before the fall. Man worked before the fall. And I believe that in heaven there will be work based on what I see in Scripture. Now notice, too, it says in our text that there were three trees. If you read it again, you can see it. It says, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So that's one type of tree. Every tree that was pleasant to sight and good for fruit. Then there was the tree of life. And then there was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, next week when we get to chapter 3, we're going to talk extensively about these trees. So I'm just going to leave that for next week. Now, look at Genesis 2, 10 through 14. Genesis 2, 10 through 14, it says, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Hilva, where there is gold. And the gold is that land, uh, of that land is good. Bedellum and ox stone are there. The name of the second river is Kihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. Now, <laughs> I don't know about y'all, but I am a bottom line up front. If you send me a long email, I'm just telling you, I probably don't read the whole thing. I want the bottom line up front. If you could even just say, BL, whatever would that be, BL, bottom line up front, whatever that, however that would, and just write the bottom line up front. And then if you want to go into great detail underneath, that's great. But I like the bottom line up front. Right here to me, it feels like Moses is doing the very thing I don't like. It feels like he digresses here and begins to talk about these rivers and these unfamiliar places that I'm going, Moses, come on, man, You're, the story is beginning to drag I don't need to know about all these rivers, you know. His original audience, however, would have known those places. And they would have read it, and they, you know what it would have communicated to them? Oh, this is real stuff. He's talking about, yeah, I know that. When I grew up, I remember going by that place. You see, it meant something to them, and it meant this is real. Because a lot of people are reading the Genesis account these days, and they're saying this is fantasy, this is fiction, this is mythological. Moses is trying to say, no, 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 this is real. These are real places. And so they would have connected these descriptions in a way that we cannot, because we don't know these places. And so that's what I believe 
Moses is doing amongst other things in that text. Look now at Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So again, he's putting them there to work. Before the fall, there was no sin. He's putting him there to work. And actually, we talked about in week one, or Genesis one, to fulfill the cultural mandate. God has put us here to subdue and have dominion over the land. And he's putting Adam in the garden to fulfill part of the cultural mandate. And part of the cultural mandate also was with Eve to fill the earth with their children and reproduce. That's part of the cultural mandate. It grows right out of Genesis 1 and 2. And so it is significant to note that man was working and he was working alongside, here in a moment, Eve. Man is made to worship God by serving him and obeying him. The chief means of fulfilling that is keeping God's word. God gives man a law and he is to obey. Look at Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, this is so interesting, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Do you remember in Genesis 1 what we said was God would create and after he would create, he would say, it is good. And we said that the word good meant perfect, complete. And that humans never get to say that. We never get to, after we do something and create something, we never get to say it's good, it's perfect, it's complete. But God says that seven times, which represents perfection. But now, this is before the fall, God is saying, it is not good. It isn't good that man is alone. I'll make a helper for him. So why is it not good that man be alone? So Moses starts to tell us, and he tells us, about how God created woman. But her creation, I think, from the scripture grows out of two key things. First, in order for mankind to be able to fulfill the cultural mandate that was given in Genesis 1.28, there must be male and female. Because part of the cultural mandate is to reproduce and fill the earth. There's no way to do that without male and female. So that's part of it. But here's the second part, and this is the part that, if you're a woman, I hope, I hope you hear this. And I hope I'm able to say it in a way that God would have me say it that would make much of you as a woman. Adam is not able to serve 
and obey God properly without a corresponding horizontal relationship. He needs a partner in order to worship God fully. And God knew it. In Genesis 1, you know, he said it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. But then when he looked at man, he said, it is not good. There is one problem in the garden. It's not good that man should be alone in worshiping God, in learning, and submitting to his word. This is an amazing proclamation. And it's amazing because Adam was in a perfect state. There's no sin. The environment was perfect. And Adam experienced, in this time, he was experiencing the immediate presence and nearness of God. He had all of that. And God still looks and says, it's not good that man should be alone. Man was created with a need not just when I'm saying man here I'm saying man and woman with a need for a relationship because we're created in his image and you see even in heaven the trinity have each other and they did not create us as I've said before creation and man out of some need that they had for a relationship with us. They created because they were in so much fulfillment and joy, fullness, if you had a cup right here like this, fullness has a propensity to overflow. And so God was overflowing with goodness and creativity and greatness and he shares that with his creation beauty and goodness and truth and value and so God creates for man but I want to say this too for the women's sake the word here helper we've done it injustice throughout time God creating a helper for man. It communicates like uh, this, uh, you know, well, he's, he's top dog and she's the helper, right? I mean, it kind of comes across that way. Don't believe that for a minute. Let me tell you what the Word of God says. It says that Yahweh comes and aids humans. The same word helper for God helping man is the word that's used for woman to help man. If you look, and we're not going to have time, but Deuteronomy 33, 7, the same word for God helping man is used for woman helping man. In Psalm 33, 20, and again in Psalm 121, 1 and 2, same word. So God, it's noteworthy to say here, that God has created both male and female to complement each other. And in our text, 
He's creating the institution of marriage. That's a God thing. Now, this is where I begin to sweat. And the reason is, my conscience is bound to say some things about marriage and the institution of marriage that are not popular in our culture. He gave male and female a command in the cultural mandate that could not be fulfilled by a man with another man. He gave them a cultural mandate that could not be fulfilled by a woman with another woman. When God created, he created male and female. And he did so that they could reproduce and fill the earth. But let me say this, it goes way beyond just filling the earth with reproduction. It is much deeper and much fuller what God was doing at creation when he created male and female. There is something in God's created order that we should yield to and obey. I know it's a cultural hot button, but God's word, and this is what it comes down to ultimately, either God's word is the authority in your life and my life or our culture and things that people are saying out there or your feelings, how you feel about it. Either this is the word of God authoritatively given to us and we are to obey its commands or we follow ourselves. The secular world has turned the volume up so loud and we hear it so frequently that this generation that we are living in today is more confused over sexual identity issues than any generation in America previous. So with that, you're saying, well, if the word is authoritative, show me from the word. Look with me at Romans 1, 26 through 32. Romans 1, 26 through 32. God created the institution of marriage in these verses, Paul is arguing with the Romans and he's saying that you can see that there is a God just by looking at creation. You can see it. But some are suppressing the truth. And this is what the Word of God says. Romans 1, 26 through 32. For this reason, God gave them up. He's talking about those practicing the homosexual lifestyle, the dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. If that's not clear enough, then it says... 
men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but here's the kicker. They don't only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now, I want to be real clear. There's a list in here that Paul hits. It's not just all about homosexuals. Every one of us are in that list. I'm in that list. There are things that I do that are deceitful, malicious, and the list goes down. But we are not doing our children and the next generation the favor that we think we are when we tolerate any sin, any sin, not just this sin. We're not doing them good. But let me say it this way too. Please hear this. As much as you heard what I may have just read, Christians should be the most loving community on the face of the earth. And we should love people in their sin unconditionally. But that does not mean that we have to say, well, this doesn't matter. Do whatever you want. If it makes you feel good, do it. Did you, not, did you see in the text, it says he gives them over to their passions. You know what the, the scriptures teach? Truth will set you free. You know what our culture believes? Passion will set me free. I just, I feel it. I feel this. I've got to do it or I'm never going to be free. I'm never going to be myself. The scriptures teach truth sets you free, not following your passions. If I follow my passions, I promise you, you would not let me up here I wouldn't deserve to be up here. I would have already committed heterosexual sin multiple times over. My wife would have left me. My children would think I was a scumbag because I am a sinner. You can't follow your passions and truly be set free. Freedom means to obey God's word and find grace. And so, let me close with this. Genesis 2, 20 through 23. The man gives name to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed it up in its place with flesh, 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I'm going to throw you a curveball right here. Jerry Maguire. Did you ever see the movie? I think in the movie Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise, Renee Zellweger, Cuba Gooding Jr. play in this movie. And it's, it's older, I know that. But I believe the people that wrote the script for Jerry Maguire were reading Genesis 2 when they wrote the script. And you're like, I uh, can't wait to hear how he explains that. Because there's one place where Tom Cruise looks at Renee Zellweger and he tells her, what does he say, y'all? You complete me. That's straight out of Genesis 2. That's straight out of Genesis 2. You complete me. And you know, Renee Zellringer tells Tom Cruise at one point, she says, after they'd broken up, he's calling her back to get back together. She says, shut up, shut up, shut up. You had me at hello. That's Genesis 2. Look at what Adam said. This at last is bone of my bones. You see, unfortunately, sin and our enemy have attacked marriage at every turn. We're all selfish, and we want what we want, and this leads to turning our backs on our spouses and ultimately God. Our community, our families, our church needs healthy, life-giving, soul-satisfying, grace-filled, biblical marriages. And the very last thing I want to say is this. There are many of you that are sitting here that Sin ultimately has left you widowed. The reason I say sin is because death didn't enter the world until sin happened. And so you're sitting here and maybe you're widowed and you're hearing all this and you probably agree, but there's an emptiness and a, and a hole. And then there's some of you that are sitting here that sin somehow has led to divorce and you're alone in this life right now. And then there may be some of you that never even had a chance to marry. What I want you to know is Isaiah 26, 3 says this. He will keep you in perfect peace. Those whose mind is set on him. He will be your husband. He will be your wife. He will be the lover of your soul. And there are some of you, even as I look out here, I wish you were up here because your testimony is so much more powerful than what I'm saying. Because you have trusted him. Let's pray.